reading from verse 14. I myself am satisfied about you, my brothers and sisters, that you yourselves are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge and able to instruct one another. But on some points, I've written to you very boldly by way of reminder, because of the grace given me by God to be a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles in the priestly service of the gospel of God, so that the offering of the Gentiles may be acceptable, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. In Christ Jesus, then, I have reason to be proud of my work for God, for I'll not venture to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me to bring the Gentiles to obedience, by word and deed, by the power of signs and wonders, by the power of the Spirit of God, so that from Jerusalem and all the way around to Illyricum, I have fulfilled the ministry of the gospel of Christ. And thus, I make it my ambition to preach the gospel, not where Christ has already been named, lest I build on someone else's foundation. But as it is written, those who have never been told of him will see, and those who have never heard will understand. This is the reason why I've so often been hindered from coming to you. But now, since I no longer have any room for work in these regions, and since I've longed for many years to come to you, I hope to see you in passing as I go to Spain, and to be helped on my journey there by you, once I've enjoyed your company for a while. At present, however, I'm going to Jerusalem bringing aid to the saints. For Macedonia and Achaia have been pleased to make some contribution for the poor among the saints at Jerusalem. They were pleased to do it, and indeed they owe it to them. For if the Gentiles have come to share in their spiritual blessings, they ought also to be of service to them in material blessings. When therefore I've completed this and have delivered to them what has been collected, I'll leave for Spain by way of you. I know that when I come to you, I will come in the fullness of the blessing of Christ. I appeal to you, brothers, by our Lord Jesus Christ and by the love of the Spirit to strive together with me in your prayers to God on my behalf, that I may be delivered from the unbelievers in Judea and that my service for Jerusalem may be acceptable to the saints so that by God's will I may come to you with joy and be refreshed in your company. May the God of peace be with you all. Amen. If you keep that passage open there before you, you'll find that helpful to follow along. This, this will be our final week in Romans this week, and we'll turn to the Gospel of Luke as we begin to think about Easter and begin to see Jesus' journey to the cross there. But still there's uh, plenty to think about this morning in these final few verses from Romans as we finish this journey that we've been on through this great letter. Paul has... Uh, finished his encouragement to the weak and the strong in chapter 15, verse 13. We finished that last week and we said you could summarize what he's saying. He's saying it's not all about you, that we're to look to the book and that God does his work his way. And in some ways, Romans really has sort of ended properly at that verse 13. In terms of the, the real substance and core of the message that Paul has, he's really come to a close. What we have here this morning are some closing words, although some significant teaching even just within those. But some closing words followed by some greetings in, in chapter 16 that we won't sort of spend any great depth in this time. But at the end of this amazing letter... These are Paul's last words to the Romans. And in some ways, his closing words here could be reduced to one word. Focus. 
Remember who you are. Remember your friends. And remember who's boss. Focus. Look at verse 14 to 21 there with me. And I think Paul's point here is about remembering who you are. I used to work in, in debt management and uh, the company that I worked for, it was a very young company. It liked to think of itself as sort of trendy and sort of copying Google and these other sort of big tech companies with different innovations. We'd dress down, we had a big sort of fish tank in the office, different things like this. Uh, and one of the aspects of that was mandatory fun. Uh, so there would be not just your sort of nine to five, but mandatory fun in the evenings together. And there's nothing that really screams not fun as being forced to have fun. But there we are. Uh, at the time, me and Karis were, were pretty poor. So the prospect of a free meal was, was something, uh, at least some saving grace. It was a job, and it was a job I was doing only really to, to pay the bills, really, as, as we were supposed to be planting a church. But I'm sat there on one of these nights out, pretending to listen to rather inane chat, if you don't mind me saying. And, um, you know, you know I don't, you'll never experience this, of course. Um, when you have somebody who's in front of you and just like talks and talks, and talks, and, and you just can't seem to shut them up. You will never, expect, you don't know what that feels like. Uh, of course not. Um, but, you know, this is happening around the tables, of course. And I'm essentially in what I would like to call screensaver mode. Uh, I'm technically awake, uh, but I'm in energy-saving mode. I'm seeing the windows fishes. This dates me a little bit. Uh, I have, hopefully, a picture of them there. If you're sort of Gen Z, you'll, you'll have never experienced that. Um, that's all I'm really seeing as I'm hearing white noise. Uh, there's a lot of nodding, the sort of odd, hmm, yeah, oh, really? Okay, the occasional smile. I've become the Willy Wonka meme, uh, if you like. And then I realized I'd lost focus in my life. I'd allowed other people to set my priorities and I was trying to please people I didn't care about. I got up, I walked out, I caught a bus, I went home. I wasn't much longer at the company. I lost focus in my life. And that was the moment I sort of realized. I wonder if you've ever known that feeling, if you ever had a moment like that. Well, Paul wants to show them here, the Romans, to focus on who they are. And we see that Paul is very focused on who God has made him to be and what he's given him to do. These verses show us why Paul wrote the letter, what Paul was really about, what he thinks of the Romans, and what's next for him. I myself am satisfied about you. He says, you're full of goodness or knowledge and able to instruct one another. And maybe just in case the Romans were beginning to get a little bit worried that Paul wasn't so reassured about them, Paul reassures them, I'm satisfied about you, full of goodness, full of knowledge, able to instruct one another. They're a good church. There's good people there. They have good qualities, if not perfect. And chapters 14 to 15 sort of show that. They're not perfect, but they're a good church. They're good 
people, for all the challenges that Paul's given in those chapters. We know what he thinks of them. We know he loves them. We know he values them. You can look just a few verses over into chapter 16 on those greetings and some of the things he says of them. That they're people who have served alongside him, fellow servants, brothers and sisters, those who've stuck their neck out for him, those who've become his mother and cared for him. These are people he respects and loves. He thinks very highly of them. But he reminds us a little later on in chapter 16 of why then he's been so challenging. I appeal to you, he says, verse 17, brothers, to watch out for those who cause divisions and create obstacles contrary to the doctrine that you've been taught. Avoid them, for such persons do not serve our Lord Christ, but their own appetites. And by smooth talk and flattery, you can't accuse Paul of that, they deceive the hearts of the naive. For your obedience is known to all, so that I rejoice over you, but I want you to be wise as to what is good and innocent as to what is evil. He loves them. He thinks highly of them, but he's fatherly. He wants the best for them, and he'll challenge them. You're full of goodness. You're full of all knowledge. You're able to instruct one another. But he says, on some points, I've written to you very boldly by way of reminder. There's been some things they've needed to hear again. And in the Christian life, no one ever really graduates to the point of not needing to be pulled back to the gospel of Jesus. Nobody ever outgrows that. You always need reminding of that. And now we see here Paul's calling in ministry, who God has made him to be and the work God's given him to do is lined up with the Romans' need in discipleship. He says, I've written very boldly to you by way of reminder because of the grace given to me by God as a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles in the priestly service of the gospel of God so that the offering of the Gentiles may be acceptable, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. And I wonder, you might wonder like me, what does that mean? (laughs) That's a mouthful, verse 16, isn't it? What does that actually mean? There's a lot of big words and jargon there, isn't there, perhaps? Well, Paul doesn't see himself or any minister as a priest. He never speaks in that language usually. But he's using this as a metaphor. It's priestly. It's a bit like a priest. And all that language is temple language, priestly, offering, acceptable. These are all words of the temple. And Paul is saying here, if you like, his job has been to be a bit like a priest, to present the Gentiles as an offering to God. He said earlier on, chapter 12, verse 1, to present yourself as a living sacrifice. Give yourself over to God as a sacrifice. You don't need to give any animals anymore. That's already been and done with. But give yourself to him as a response to the gospel. And so his point is to say, everything that he's taught, everything that he's done has been about them, one, seeing all that Jesus has done for them, and two, giving their lives to him as a response. And so Paul is focused on what it is he does, what it is God has given him to do. Steve Jobs, famous CEO, thinking about focus, says the hardest thing is when you think about focusing, well, focusing is saying yes, no. Focusing is about saying no. Paul is focused on what his job is so that he can say no to what is not his job. And so I wonder even for yourself, what is is your purpose? 
in your work, in your life? What's your focus and purpose that helps you decide what it is you do? These next few verses here, 17 to 21, Paul focuses on who God has made him, what God's given him to do, and where he's going next. Look at verse 17. In Christ Jesus, then, I have reason to be proud of my work for God. Do you hear what he's saying? He has worked hard, but Jesus has given him the skills. In Christ Jesus, then, I have reason to be proud of my work for God. And the first bit is the most important bit of the sentence. In Christ Jesus, I have reason to be proud of my work for God. So we too should, I think, work hard be proud of the results. If we're committing our work and our life over to God like this, we'll work hard, but be proud of the results that come from it in Christ. See, our work, whatever that might be, whether that's in education, whether that's research, whether we're a student, whether we're at school, whether it's paid work, whether it's voluntary work or caring for somebody, whether it's homemaking, Whatever it is, wherever it is that you spend the most of your week and most of your life, the most of your energy, let me ask, why do you work? Why do you do that? Do you work to pay the bills? You work just because that's a societal expectation. Well, this is just what people do. Do you work to relieve the boredom? Do you work to try to find fulfillment? To find an identity? To find who you are in doing that work? Or just a sense of need? You kind of like people needing what it is that you do. Why do you work? Because the reason for work is two things. Firstly, to serve God. To put to use God-given skills, aptitudes, abilities for him and for his honour. The first reason for work is to serve God. The second reason is to serve people. To put those skills to use to bless the community within which God has placed us in. And that doesn't just happen in ministry-type jobs, in caring-type jobs. That happens just as much in businesses and through trades that offer equally God-given skills and chances to serve. And what's valuable about all of these jobs, whatever it is that you do with your hands and with your time, what's valuable about those jobs isn't just that you can tell people about your faith in the line of that work, Though you can, and that's good, and I'd ask you to do, do that, but what's valuable in this work is the very activity itself, the business itself. Your work is spiritual. It is ministry. So, if that's true, if that's the case, you should do your absolute best at what God's called you to do, to give it everything, give it all you have. Even if the job kind of sucks. Because we're not all, and we're not always, in a job that we want to be, or that's easy. That's just not how life goes, is it? 
It doesn't mean that you have to stay in that job. Ask God. But as long as you are in that job, as long as you are placed there, your commitment to God should drive the commitment to your job. Not the conditions, not the management, not the pay, not the holiday allowance. Even though it would be a good thing if those things were good, for sure. But the commitment to God drives your commitment to your job. I was once in an interview for a management position and said all of this stuff, and you've never seen such confused faces as a panel of five young uh, atheists hearing that. And yet, no one had ever said anything like them that to them. And so oddly, somehow, it sort of worked in my favor. All I just thought was, oh, oh what, what motivates you to work? And I thought, oh, this would be funny. <laughs> I'll tell you what really does. There's something different about it, isn't it? Martin Luther King, speaking about work, said, if a man is called a street sweeper, he should sweep the streets even as Michelangelo painted or as Beethoven composed music or Shakespeare wrote poetry. He should sweep streets so well that all the hosts of heaven and earth will pause to say, here lived a great street sweeper who did his job well work is spiritual but now Paul focuses his point a little bit more look at verse 18 in Christ Jesus then he said I have reason to be proud of my work for God verse 18 I'll not venture to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me the focus of his pride is how Jesus has empowered him and enabled him and given him the abilities not his own capabilities the focus of his pride is not that oh I had all this skill but that no actually I was really incompetent but God gave me everything that I needed let me tell you a great story of how God dug me out yet again I'll venture not to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me. That is the opposite of arrogance. I hope you see. That actually to speak much of what God has done through you because of what God has done through you is the opposite of arrogance. That's humility. And so he tells us what God has done by word and deed, by the power of signs and wonders, by the power of the Spirit of God. God has come through for him. I mean, there's so many different examples, but just let me give you a few just from the book of Acts in Paul's life here. Uh, chapter 13, he blinds a deceitful magician. In chapter 14, uh, there's just general signs and wonders happening sort of through him. Heals a man who couldn't walk. In chapter 16, an earthquake opens up his prison cell. In chapter 20, he brings a dead person to life again. God has worked amazingly and powerfully through him here. And so I wonder, do we dedicate our work to God like this? Do we believe our work, whatever that is, is service to God? It's a chance to see God's glory in some small way. Do we do that? Because we should. Paul says, from Jerusalem to Illyricum, I've fulfilled the ministry of the gospel of Christ. And hopefully there's a map here that might give you a bit of a sort of sense of where that is. So you'll, you'll see Jerusalem. Be around there. And Illyricum is around there. 
So that would be modern-day Croatia, I think, that, that sort of area. So you see the sweep of the area that Paul has been in and been working through and planting churches through. He says, I've, I've done my job here. It's finished. There's a sense of fulfillment. So he says, I make it my ambition to preach the gospel not where Christ has already been named. Paul knows and understands himself. He's a, he's a pioneer. He's one who breaks unbroken ground. That's who God's made him to be. Lest I build on someone else's foundation. The problem isn't somebody else's foundation, right? Because if the building is done well, the problem isn't that someone else has built a foundation. It's just that that's not who Paul is. Paul is the kind of person who comes and starts where there's nothing. That's who he is. That's what he's called to do. As it's written, he says, and he quotes from Isaiah 52, those who've never been told of him will see. Those who've never heard will understand. Paul is given the Romans this letter so they remember who they are as he reminds himself who he is. And in Romans, for all of the bad news about the reality of our fallen nature, chapter 8, verse 1, there's now, therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Through him we've no need to fear judgment. Why? Because God has covered our sins by the offering of Jesus in our place to keep the law where we haven't and to pay for failings that he didn't make. And so what's the outcome of all of that? That we're his children. That every sin, every failing tends to come from forgetting we're his child and from forgetting He's a good dad. And so Paul encourages us, remember who you are. Secondly, it's about remembering who your friends are. Henry Ford once said, there are three things that grow more precious with age, old wood to burn, old books to read, and old friends to enjoy. And Paul wants them to know the value with which he values them as friends. And he plans to invest time in them because the gospel creates deep friendships amongst us. Paul feels he has to explain to them why he hasn't visited them yet uh, and yet why he sent this letter to them. Look at verse 22. This, the call to preach in places where the church doesn't yet exist, that he's talked about there, is the reason why I've so often been hindered from coming to you. It wasn't that Paul didn't want to spend time with them, that he didn't want to visit. He said that right at the beginning of the letter, actually, chapter 1, verse 13, too. But his workload and his responsibilities had not made it possible so far. But there's a change coming in Paul's life. But now, since I no longer have any room for work in these regions, and since I've longed for many years to come to you, now... He plans to finally get to see them. And Paul recognises that an era is coming to an end in his life. That he has done all he can where God has placed him. Though God hadn't, by any means, done all that he would do, Paul feels he's done all that he could do in the areas in which he'd been placed. And there's a humility from Paul, isn't there? That he knows what he can do, and he knows when he's done all that he can do. And it's time for God to send somebody else to continue the work. I hope to see you in passing as I go to Spain, he says, and to be helped on my journey there by you once I've enjoyed your company. And Paul hopes to finally be able to see them, enjoy their company, 
And we know from chapter 1, verse 12, that he wants them to be mutually encouraged. He hopes that he will come and encourage them and he'll be encouraged by them and hearing what God has been at work amongst them. See, friendships marked by love, by fruit of the gospel and by encouragement aren't an afterthought for Paul here and they shouldn't be for us. They're crucial. And there's a difference between being friends and being friendly as a church. They're not the same thing. You'll never be friends if you're not friendly, of course, but being friendly doesn't make you friends. Friendly is a sort of projection of a relationship without the substance. And I would hope, as a church, we'd be a church of friends, not friendly. I'm not really so keen on that. I'm not so bothered by that. I'd rather that we'd be a church made up of friends. You can't be friends in the same way with absolutely everyone. That's, that's just life, isn't it? But you'd certainly need some friends who really, really know you and whom you know. And that's why connect groups and DNA groups and all these things are so, so important for us. These are not an afterthought for Paul and they shouldn't be for us. And he wants them to help his mission to Spain. He's asking for a little something from them. He plans to get across to Spain and to preach the gospel there for a while. At this point, Spain is sort of seen in many people's eyes as the sort of western frontier of the world and for some time. Of course, they're a bit mistaken about that, but at least at the time. Spain is sort of seen as being the sort of very edge of the world uh, to the West. And so Paul, in his mind, it would be natural that he would think, well, that's the place I need to be. I need to be the place that nobody's been yet. This is new territory. This is what Paul does. And he hopes that they will help them along the way. And due to his role apostle to the gentiles he can reasonably expect that they would and that they should help him along in that cause these next few verses here we just hear about this collection for jerusalem verses 25 to 29 i don't know if you notice that there as you look to that this collection and paul's passing it over to them is a major focus of paul's third missionary journey and it shows us that sometimes Paul's mission is actually very practical, very material. It's helping people out with very sort of real needs. There'd been a famine in Jerusalem. And so Paul saw an opportunity to show solidarity between uh, believers from sort of all across the empire as well as uh, those from Jerusalem. And so he raised money from the churches throughout sort of Europe and Asia uh, to bring across to Jerusalem to help uh, the brothers and sisters over there and this is what he's speaking of here and Paul has been eager to strengthen this sort of Jewish and Gentile friendship and he's been talking about it throughout the course of this letter and it's partly because it's been building up to him sort of asking without totally outright asking uh, that they would give to this collection and be part of this too at present however he says I'm going to Jerusalem bringing aid to the saints for Macedonia and Achaia have been pleased to make some contribution for the poor among the saints at Jerusalem. This is a classic Jedi mind trick. Um, one of the ways in which I am tricked by my wife, who is of superior intelligence to me, 
is in much a similar way. Do you see what Paul did there? Macedonia and Achaia have been pleased to give this to you. Nothing makes you want to do a job that you haven't done and have put off more than when a woman deliberately says that she might ask another man to do it. I know that this happens, of course. It doesn't stop me delaying jobs that I don't want to do, but it does sort of curtail the delaying at a certain point. We think, oh, no, I'm going to have to do this now. And we go round in a sort of little dance where I know that she does this, she knows that that's what she's doing, but it sort of works, doesn't it? And uh, I don't want to cast sort of aspersions on anyone else, but I, I might suggest that perhaps that this happens more often than, than maybe just in, in my home. I think Paul knows what he's doing. Macedonia and Achaia have been really pleased to, to give to this well. He doesn't even have to come straight out and say, give to it. He just has to say, oh, they've, they've been really generous. And all of a sudden, you don't want to look stingy in comparison, do you? Paul's crafty world-wise, isn't he? They've been pleased to give. Do you want to come across as unreasonable? And so Paul now is more serious. Look at verse 27. Indeed, they owe it to them. For if the Gentiles have come to share in their spiritual blessings, they ought also to be of service to them in material blessings. If the Gentiles, if the Jewish believers here are united, then there's a responsibility. And in a season of abundance for the Gentiles, whilst there's famine going on in Jerusalem, the Gentiles do owe it to their brothers and sisters to help them along in a time of need. So Paul plans to come to them, no doubt hopes he'll raise a little money to take with him, to take it back. He says, I know that when I come to you, I'll come in the fullness of the blessing of Christ. He's going to come with the blessing of the gospel, actually. In fact, it can be translated there. When he has this collection off of his plate, pun intended, uh, he can focus fully on actually just encouraging them and being with them. This will be a relief for him. It's been quite a responsibility. You hear him speak about it in, uh, in Corinthians as well, the pressure a little bit being on him. The gospel creates these friendships where we use what's ours for other people's good, whether spiritual blessings or material blessings. Remember who you are, remember your friends, and then lastly, remember who's boss. Remembering who's in charge can be really, really helpful for settling our hearts, take you back uh, Actually, no, before I do, I wonder if you've ever heard, even as an adult, uh, your mother say to you, you're not too old for a clip around the year. There's some times in life, even as adults, in which we need to remember who's in charge. And mums are good at reminding us sometimes when we just get a little bit above our station. Well, how about this? I take you back to my, my job at the... Uh, debt management company. I'm working there. I've told you sort of previously in the past, one of my many ailments is uh, I really enjoy a good graph, a good Excel sheet. Uh, it really pleases me. Uh, and so as, as part of the job at one point, uh, I was doing some financial analysis. And um, in the course of that, we realized that the company had lost out on somewhere between 250 and 500,000 pounds worth of fees that were never taken uh, in the automated system. Now, knowing that I'm not the boss, I'm not responsible, it's not my fault, 
did an awful lot to settle my heart. I was very, very zen when I discovered that and relayed that because it wasn't my problem. <laughs> it wasn't me carrying the responsibility. It wasn't me that did it. Remembering the boss can really help at times. And remembering that God is in charge is a relief for us because it means we can actually look to him to deliver us. I appeal to you, Paul says. And the word there that Paul's using, it's like a lawyer appealing, making a case in court. I appeal to you. Paul's letter's ending with an ask here. What does he want? I appeal to you, strive together with me in your prayers to God on my behalf. The word is sun agonistio. Together, striving, working. And the word is agonize, straining working alongside me, struggling alongside me in your prayers to God on my behalf. Why should they? Just again in verse 30. By our Lord Jesus Christ and by the love of the Spirit. He hopes that God himself would lead them to wanting to do this. And what does he ask them to pray for? Look at verse 31. That I may be delivered from the unbelievers in Judea. There's one thing. And that my service for Jerusalem may be acceptable. He has two concerns he really wants them to pray for him for. First, there's a worry for his safety. And actually, Paul really downplays the level of risk that there is against his life. We know just from a couple of snapshots again from Acts that he really does face danger in Jerusalem. We hear in chapter 9 of how he's lowered out of a basket to escape Damascus. A little later in that same chapter, escaping Jerusalem where they want to kill him. Uh, a little later, Jews incite a riot in Pisidian Antioch. And then in chapters 20 to 21, we hear of him going to Jerusalem, but how he's going to be bound and imprisoned. So there's a real threat to Paul here, and there's a worry for his safety. Even here, though, I don't think Paul is asking, pray that I won't face any danger. I think he's asking, Pray I get to do the job I've been given. Pray that the opposition doesn't stop me doing the job God gives me to do. There's a worry for his safety, but secondly, he wants his collection to be accepted. Paul's concerned that the gift is received well by the saints in Jerusalem because there's a potential, I suppose, that they may take this gift the wrong way. And he wants this to be a moment of unity between Jerusalem and the Gentiles, not disunity. So there's his concern, so that by God's will I may come to you with joy and be refreshed in your company. He hopes that will be a burden off for him. May the God of peace be with you all. And it's fitting that the letter, in, in essence, really ends with Paul asking that they would know God's peace amongst them. He's reminded us, remember who you are, remember your friends, but remember who's boss, who's in charge. Your challenges, the dangers you face, the hopes and mission that you have can all be turned to the living God and shared together. Thinking about sort of how to end this and sort of how to end the series overall in sort of Romans. After all this time, we've been looking through it. And it came to me that the most important thing, I think, of being a pilot is probably being able to land the plane, isn't it? It's one of those jobs that it's really not very good if you're good at three quarters of it, but you mess up the landing. That's sort of the money part, isn't it? 
really. That's where you sort of earn your wages, is being able to actually bring the plane down safely. You could be very good at sort of cruising the plane sort of nicely through the high altitudes. You could have a nice sort of manner on the radio with the passengers. You could manage the cruise sort of very nicely and everything. But if you can't get the plane safely back onto the runway, the right runway at the right time, if you can't land it right, then what does any of all of the rest mean anyway? And so how does Paul land this letter? Well, just a few verses further ahead, chapter 16, his actual now final words here. 16 verse 25. Now to him who is able to strengthen you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery that was kept secret for long ages, but has now been disclosed and through the prophetic writings has been made known to all nations, according to the command of the eternal God to bring about the obedience of faith to the only wise God. Be glory forevermore through Jesus Christ. Amen. Where does Paul land at the end of the book of Romans? A book that's been all about how God saves a broken world. His message is, look to the God who is able to save you, who is able to change you, who is able to strengthen you and uphold you. Listen to his word. He lands where he took off right at the very beginning. Chapter 1, this is 16 to 17. We'll read them one last time. He lands in the very same spot that he had taken off in the first place. I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it's written, the righteous shall live by faith.